Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Job, chapter 23, verses 10 through 14. And this is Job speaking here. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the the word word of of the Lord Lord stands stands forever. forever. Thank you, Leslie. Well, this is our second sermon in our series from First Peter, and as we've talked about, um, we've titled this series Resident Aliens, the Church in Exile, because um, we are living in strange times, and increasingly we feel um, followers of Christ like um, strangers in our own land. And we talked about last week how the gospel estranges the culture from us in some ways, There are things about the culture we like, uh, things of the culture we're involved in. We're certainly a part of the culture. Um, At the same time, because we follow Christ, um, there are things about the culture that estrange us to it. So uh, our sermon this morning is called A Sure and Living Hope from 1 Peter 3 and 9. So this uh, this is our scripture reading for this morning for our our sermon. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, thank you for this. Hear your word, illuminate and excite our hearts to its truth. Give us understanding and wisdom this morning that we might be convinced and convicted of your power, your truth, and your word that we might leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, something modern Americans don't realize when we read the New Testament is that the entire New Testament, finished by the end of the first century, was written at a time when the church had no political power or cultural influence. 
very little, if any, cultural power. And all of its hope and joy and celebration take place amidst a relatively marginal church. So think of all of the hope and the, the sort of grandiose expectation of God's power and salvation written at a time when the church was relatively marginal, small, relegated to um, irrelevance by many people. The church was just getting off the ground, the New Testament church. They didn't hold the centers of power. They lived at a time when the culture was dominated by its pagan overlords, the Roman Empire. And most of the ancient world, of course, was pagan. And by that, I simply mean that they worshiped a myriad of gods, a pantheon of gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, um, Persian gods. So the church didn't lead the great institutions. They didn't have cultural power. They didn't have political influence. And yet there was this groundswell of hope and excitement that the New Testament writers had amidst that. That statement alone is a lesson for us living right now. In his book, Disappearing Church, Mark Sayers explains how for a thousand plus years, Christianity has had incredible cultural and political influence. And until recently, has occupied the centers of power in the Western world. And, you know, Western civilization in many ways is the gift of Christianity and the church. I mean, part of what Western culture is, is the product of the Christian faith, the Bible, and the church. But in the last hundred years, secularism has gradually sort of nudged Christianity out of its spot and thought, secularism that is, thought that it could still hold on to Western culture. But we now see that that's not the case, don't we? The West is disintegrating right in front of us. And a new post-Christian culture has taken hold. Now we might ask, well, what exactly is post-Christian culture? Mark Sayers defines it this way. Post-Christian culture is an attempt to advance the goals of Christianity without Christ. Post-Christian culture is an attempt to advance the goals of Christianity without Christ. Now, there may be other definitions of post-Christian culture, but that's one of them. Sort of the kingdom without the king. And we see this, don't we? We want justice without the one who justifies us. Love without the cross. Reconciliation without forgiveness. That's, that's what I mean. Sort of the goals of Christianity without Christ. We want all the good stuff that Christianity gives us, but we don't want the hard work of Christianity. Now, where did post-Christian culture come from, or where did it start, we could ask? And some have said it started in the, the Renaissance or the Enlightenment, and that's partly true, but Post-Christian culture is really the result of a change in Christians themselves. Because it's not like the church and Christians are unaffected by the culture and everything that goes on around them. Christians 
Well, we tend to get caught up in the cultural tides and currents, don't we? We're not completely unscathed or unaffected by what's happening in the world around us. Post-Christian culture then is in some ways the result of, you could say, Christians becoming less Christian, but still sort of outwardly identifying as Christians over time. Wanting all of the benefits of Christianity without Christ. The fruit without the fruitfulness. G.K. Chesterton, writing about 100 years ago, said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. But Mark Sayers points out, in sort of a thread of optimism, that's how I interpret it at least, that what's happening now is that post-Christian culture itself is now being displaced. As the world opens up and America recedes from its dominant global position as the center of commerce and the global culture maker that it's been, there are now hundreds of different belief systems and ideologies and cultures flooding in. In other words, it is no longer ideas of Christianity which once held the culture being displaced by a monolith of of thought in secular post-Christian culture. Even that is being displaced through globalism by tons of ideas, tons of religions, tons of belief systems. And of course, it's the disruption of globalization, isn't it? America's cities are no longer on the cutting edge technologically and commercially like they used to be, but cities in Asia and the Middle East, cities like Hong Kong and Dubai and Kuala Lumpur. In fact, Because those nations have more recently developed, if you go to those cities, they feel far more technologically advanced than anything in America. Hologram billboards, you know, a thousand feet in the sky. And cultures of people all, from all over the world, integrating. Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and all these people integrating. The the, the playing field has sort of been leveled at the feet of globalization or as a result of globalization and the world is incredibly diverse. There's all this integration and Mark Sayers says that the number of Christians in America may be shrinking but what is happening is that the Christians that are remaining are becoming what he calls resilient disciples. Right? So there's demographics going on, demographics of Christians, sort of the Christian in name only, people who are on their way out of Christianity, they were only culturally Christian, and then there's a group of people who truly believe. They're the crack soldiers, so to speak. They're what he calls resilient disciples. And they are finding ways to share the gospel in this new globalized world and economy and culture that we are rapidly fl- rushing into and they are seeing opportunities for the gospel. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because as we opened our series last week, it was a little discouraging because we had to name the elephant in the room that 
America isn't what it used to be. If, if at once, one time we had this sort of, this boast that we were a Christian nation, it doesn't seem like we can make that boast anymore. And there's this kind of sadness along with that, isn't there? Right? We know what's being taught at the highest levels of government and in public schools and, you know, everywhere. And it's okay to mourn over those things. It's okay to step back and lament and mourn that, that the church is taking a hit. And we don't know what the future of the church is in our land. Again, we're talking our series is called Resident Aliens, The Church in Exile. Because it feels like we're exiles and strangers in our own land. But resilient disciples are emerging. Christians who see the opportunity for the gospel in this globalized environment. Where maybe Western style Christianity is no longer dominant, but the gospel will still triumph. Think about that for a moment. Again, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not another dominant idea competing against Christianity in a globalized environment, right? The secularism that has been the bane of the gospel itself, but rather a multiplicity of belief systems. Now, why does this present an opportunity for the gospel? Because as the world becomes more globalized and integrated, outside of the West, the West is kind of small. It's powerful, it's rich, but it's kind of small. Right? Western Europe and America, North America. But when you think about South America, Africa, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, and Asia, this is a huge part of the world of people who believe. If not the God of the Bible, they believe in gods. They are people of faith. And my son went to England, I don't know, five years ago, what was it, five years ago, on a missions team, and they went into the Southeast Asian neighborhoods of London, Bangladeshi, Indian, and Pakistani. They just went knocking on people's doors and those Hindus and Buddhists, Hindus and Muslims invited them in. They wanted to talk about God. They wanted to talk about God. They were excited. The, the Brits, you know, they don't want to talk about God. They're over it. But these people from Southeast Asia, they wanted to talk about God. And my son said they went into these homes. They just knocked on doors and said, you know, we're, I mean, kind of old school evangelism. Who is it? You know? Oh, it's the Christian evangelist. We want to talk about Jesus. Are you cool with that? Oh, come on in. Have some tea. This is what I'm getting at. And I think this is what Peter saw as an opportunity for the gospel in the first century. In the globalized world of the Mediterranean that the church was born into, he and the disciples and Paul and the New Testament writers realized that there, there were people around them who believed in things. And that if they could share Jesus and their testimony of what he has done for them and who he is, that the gospel had a chance. And it did have a chance, and we know what happened. Our hope, then, has to be in Christ and the power of the gospel, not in a homogenous political ideology. Excuse me. 
Freudian slip wanted to say idolatry. Um, not cultural hegemony, but our hope has to be in the risen Christ, the Christ of the nations, which is what scripture gives us. That's who the Bible gives us, Christ of the nations. Not Christ of the West or Christ of, Christ of the nations. So the first thing I want us to see in verses three, verse three, is that God establishes our hope in Christ. In other words, we have, we have reason to hope despite what's happening in our country right now, all right? Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I think it's hard for us to understand why, 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 it's, why we should be excited about the resurrection of Jesus Christ having any impact on our lives. Let me, let me tell you why people in the first century, Peter and the apostles, thought that the resurrection of Jesus meant that the whole world, that the meaning of it, human existence had transformed. Because death was like a reigning sort of ruler over the world. In, in our modern world, we overcome death. We have medical technologies, praise God for that. We're living longer than we ever have, I think I just read something in most of the major newspapers this week that they think that the maximum life expectancy with the right sort of health and diet and exercise and technology is 150 years old. We don't think about death much, right? And by the time death comes, we're kind of ready to get out of here. You know, if you live to you know, 90 or 95 or 103, that's been my experience. When I talk to people who are pushing 100, they're like, yeah, it's been a good run. They're not like, oh, I wish I had 40 more years. I mean, they're tired. <clears throat> There's a verse for that, right? The, the outward man is perishing, the inward man's being renewed day by day, right? Your body, you know, as you get older, you don't get stronger, you get weaker. But in the ancient world, people, sometimes they lived into their 80s, but not often. If you were a plebe, right, a manual laborer, you didn't have any power, you probably died in your late 30s. You were just worked to death. And if you were, you know, sort of an upper class, you, you lived maybe into your early 50s. That was doing pretty good. <clears throat> but to hear that someone had conquered death, it didn't just mean, oh, that means one day, you know, we'll conquer death. It meant, no, this person who has figured out something that no one else has figured out, which is Victory over the grave must be Lord, must be Savior, must be the master of the universe. That was the calculus for people living in the first century, the disciples, when they saw the risen Jesus. It meant this, this Jesus must be king of kings. He must be the Lord. And if that's the case, he's worthy to be worshiped and followed because whatever his achievements are, are our achievements. Now think of someone living in a nation where, with a powerful king, right? Think of Cyrus of the Persians, right? If you lived in Persia, you, know, you benefited when he was running the show. The spoils of his wars and conquests were given to his people. You followed a victorious king, a victorious conqueror and ruler. And so there's an excitement and a hope about Jesus, 
through the resurrection of the dead, God has given us a living hope. First Peter's all about hope. And I just want to say to you this morning that if you're depressed, um, there is reason for hope in the gospel. There is reason to have hope in Jesus. And you know, we need to be reminded of it because it's, you know, it's good news that we forgot or we forget. We put out tracks on that table every Sunday morning. It's just a little something to help you out. They're free. And I started, when I started here six years ago, those tracks were all theological. They were all theological. Not too many takers. We started putting tracks out on worry, depression, because we, we're an anxious culture. And we forget the hope of the gospel. We forget it quickly and easily. We forget the promise of the gospel that because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that God has made him both Lord and Savior, and his achievements can be our achievements by faith. His victory can be our victory. We, we just forget it. This is one of the reasons I want to encourage you to come out to church every Sunday, unless you're sick or out of town, because we need that hope, that message repeated to us over and over and over and over again. Statistics are saying people are going, committed Christians, church, who are church members, are going to church less than ever. Less than they ever have. When I started here six years ago, the statistic was faithful, Bible-believing Christians who believe in Jesus are in church twice a month. Now, when I grew up, you didn't miss church. You did not miss church. We were practical Sabbatarians. I mean, it was, we didn't have a theology of the Sabbath, but I mean, you, were just, you were in church. You didn't have to go to school, but you had to go to church. Now the statistics, I don't know how it works out, but it's like 1.3 Sundays a month. And if we continue this trend, the church, all the churches in America would just empty out. And like we've seen in Europe, right, these churches are now mosques or other, you know, concert halls because we don't recognize how much we need to hear this message of hope and victory in Jesus you thank you amen hallelujah you forget I forget even from week to week you know are, are we saved because we come to church on Sunday no but God has given us and provided for us a community of people that we need to be in fellowship and community with to encourage one another and to hear the gospel proclaimed like we're trying to do this morning. So God establishes our hope in Christ, and it's a fragile hope. It's fragile. We're finite, frail people, and our hope is, is objectively solid, but in our hearts it the flame of hope flickers and sometimes goes out. Christians get depressed. Christians worry. Christians are anxious. And sometimes Christians fall away from their faith because the light of the gospel grows dim. And it's the only thing that can sustain us, especially at a time like this. So this is a warning to all of us that in the culture we are running headlong into this new cultural reality, we need hope more than we ever have. And the hope that Peter writes about is a hope that holds the future, what God proclaims about what he's going to do ultimately in history. 
It is a hope in future, the future that is held in the present. Right? We are holding in the present this hope about the future, and it is a hope that is grounded in the past, right? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His victory over death, his atonement for the sins of sinners like us. It brings all of history together. There is hope and salvation and rescue. That's all salvation means when we say we're saved. It's, it's like really religious language now, you know? We don't even say it hardly anymore, but that's all it means. It means like God's rescued me. What does it mean to say I'm saved? It means God has rescued me. He's rescued me, my mind, from slavery to sinful behavior, even though I still struggle with sin. He's rescued me from the penalty of my sins, the, the, the judgment and condemnation that I rightly deserve. He's rescued us. That's all saved means. Right? To say we're saved, we're res- God has rescued us. How? Because on the cross, Jesus accomplished atonement for our sins and resurrection from the grave, which means that when we do get old, and some of us are at different places in our life right now, some of us may die prematurely. My brother died at 38. Some of us may live very long lives, but none of us know, Right? I don't think we would want to know. None of us know. But it means that God has power over death. It means God has power over eternity. I mean, when you think about it, I've been watching a lot of astronomy shows. I think we have a subscription to Disney Plus and National Geographic is all about Mars. You know, and they're talking about, you know, like canals on Mars that must have been, you know, shaped by water billions of years ago or whatever. And it, it helps you to see like how small we are in the universe and just how vast the universe is and to think that, you know, we're, we're kind of like in the universe, we're like bacteria. Human beings are like, you know, like on the scale, if you scale it out, we're just like, we're like bacteria, it seems like. But like God says we're important and loved. And God says that history will just not, will not extinguish your memory that you will live forever in him. Hallelujah. That famous verse in Jeremiah 29, 11 was given to exiles, and you know this verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. It's given to exiles, children of Israel, when they got marched off into Babylon, And God tells the prophet Jeremiah, tell those discouraged exiles living in a strange land, in the wicked culture of Babylon, I've not forgotten about you. I'll give you a hope and an expected end. I'll turn things around. That's what God says. And I think Christians can grab a hold of that. You know, it's been sort of plastered like a bumper sticker, but that passage is so encouraging. Because we're the people of God too, just like the Israelites were. We're God's people. I absolutely believe you can cling to that. Do you believe that this morning? That God truly does know his plans for you, that that whatever is happening in your life at this very moment, that God's faithfulness has not wavered? And although you have not been able to figure out, maybe, why your life has taken the turn that it's taken, that, that God's faithfulness remains. 
that God is still committed to bringing out of your life the beauty and the hope that he's always promised in scripture. I hope you believe that this morning. The resurrection of Jesus means that the meaning and purpose of our lives transcend this mortal realm. It isn't just a temporal future we can have hope in, but all of eternity, including the present. And that should be comforting and encouraging. I hope it is. I hope what I'm saying this morning encourages you. The second thing I want us to see about hope is that God maintains our hope through the promise of an inheritance. We hope in an inheritance that is imperishable, listen to these adjectives, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, we, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God gave his ancient people the land of Israel as an inheritance, and if you've been watching the news lately, you know that that is at the center of controversy in the Middle East with the Palestinians and the Israelis. Some people are saying, these people came from Europe 70 years ago. This is not their land. And other people are saying, actually, God promised them this land you know, thousands of years ago. And so that tug of war is going on over there. And it's tragic. But they wandered in the wilderness. They were sustained by the promise of their inheritance, which was the promised land. And like ancient Israel in the wilderness, we're pilgrims. We are pilgrims, making our way through a world that is becoming more hostile, at least in this part of the world where we're living. Isn't it? Now, there are always some people who are just like, oh, I haven't noticed. <laughs> but I think for a lot of us, we feel that the world is becoming hostile to us. But we are not dispossessed beggars wandering aimlessly with nowhere to go. But we hold, one theologian puts it this way, we hold the title deed to the inheritance God has given us. We're wandering, but we all have a deed, a title deed in our hands. Maybe you're someone that when mom and dad die, you're gonna get some stuff, an inheritance. Maybe you already did. For those of you waiting, it's not a matter of if, but when. But things can change, right? You could be cut out of the will. A conniving sibling could swindle you. Taxes may eat it all up, whatever. And things like that happened even back in Peter's day as well. But that's why he words it this way. Look at what he says. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept secure in heaven for you. Like this image of like Fort Knox in heaven. What God has promised to give you is secure. No one can break in and steal it. The value of it doesn't fade over time. It is kept secure in heaven for you. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now maybe you don't have an earthly inheritance. The vast majority of global Christians are poor. For them... This statement has all that much more meaning. And any of this world's riches 
will pale in comparison. Paul tells Timothy about this reward in 2 Timothy 4 and 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Crown of righteousness. It's what God seems to care about. It's the passport, so to speak, to eternity. The righteousness of Christ. To be able to be in the presence of a holy, sinless God and explore all of the universe's vastness. Now, that's not what the Bible says, but that's my own theology. That the crown of righteousness we receive means we get to dwell in God's holy realm for eternity. And I'd like to think that the vastness of all creation is what we get to explore. Maybe we get to fill in those worlds far and distant and cold with life. What is your hope in this morning? What are you hoping in this morning? Have you hoped in things that have disappointed? Do you have an earthly or a heavenly inheritance? And I don't mean heavenly in the sense that like somewhere in the clouds. I mean what God is going to usher in even here one day on this earth. A new heavens and a new earth he's promised to transform the existing cosmos, heaven and earth and make it into what it always was meant to be. God's guarding our inheritance, but he's, he's not just guarding our inheritance, he's guarding us. He's guarding us. If you find yourself this morning clinging to faith, he's guarding you. You haven't let go of your faith, God is guarding you. You've held on to your faith in spite of so many discouragements or disappointments. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The Spirit guards us through faith. If you, if you looked at the passage as we read through, there's all these references to hope and faith, faith and hope, faith, 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 being guarded through faith, right? All these things contingent on our faith. Faith's important. And woe to the one who loses their faith. It's a fearful thing. Because it's through faith that we're kept. Why does God use faith as the instrument of his keeping power? Why? Why is it faith? Why can't we just you know, be the best people we can be and, and that's enough? Why, why do we have to believe? Why do we have to hold on to something we cannot see or grab hold of tangibly. Well, faith is not our achievement, but trust in God's achievement. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting not in what we achieve, but what in God has achieved for us. Here's an application point. Faith is trust in God's achievement, not ours. Faith says, Lord, I don't really bring much to the table. I can't boast. I'm boasting only in who you are and in your love and mercy and your power. I believe that you have promised things, that you are who you say you are, and 
It is even by your power that you have secured my eternal salvation. It gives God the glory, not us. That's what God wants. And that's hard for some people, isn't it? It's hard to confess that at the end of the day, our achievements won't do it. And God says, you know, you weren't fooling anyone but yourself anyway. I'm the one who deserves the glory. Now, is that like narcissistic of God to say I want glory? I don't think so. I think God has done so much for us and what he expects in return, what he asks in return is gratitude and thanksgiving and faith. Right? It's a small price to pay. It's a small thing to, to pay. And then third and finally, we have joy through trials in Christ who is our hope. And look at this verse. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And everyone said, amen. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So while we travel through this world as pilgrims, God is purifying our faith through the things we suffer. Your faith is purified through the things you suffer. Which means that all suffering for believers is redemptive. God is using the suffering you experience for your good and his glory. It doesn't mean that every circumstance will turn out okay, right? Everything's gonna work out fine. Well, in the grand scheme of things, that's true because God is purifying your faith. Suffering is a strange gift, isn't it? I don't know where each of you are in your journey of suffering, you know? We have suffering ebbs and flows, mountaintops of suffering, and then there are times when things are sort of mellow. But suffering is a gift because it burns away distractions and false hopes like a purifying fire. That's what suffering does. And it reminds us of our true home and hope because often the, thing through the things that we suffer, the things we once placed our hope in sort of dis can disintegrate. And to what we've been talking about this morning, that's our cultural hegemony, right? So paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. And I have to say this, I, I observed this this week as my wife and I, we were listening to something on, I think, Christian radio, and I said... It seems, doesn't it seem, I, I asked her, I said, doesn't it seem like God is more interested in fixing broken things than he is maintaining things that are whole? She said, yeah, it does seem that way. God seems more invested in fixing broken things. I mean, look at the Bible. Right out of the gate, the world gets broken. God creates the world good and we break it, right? What happens in the garden? I watched a really good documentary 
um, this past week. I think it was made in 1998, and it was called Last Days. It was about Hungarian, six Hungarian survivors of the Holocaust in Auschwitz. Excellent, excellent documentary. And they interviewed all different six survivors, some women, some men, and all but one still believe in God. And the one who didn't believe in God was the Democratic senator from California, Tom Lantos. I don't even know if he's still alive, but his answer was ambiguous. But the rest of them all still believe in God. Blew my mind. Blew my mind. If you know, if you know about the Holocaust, I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's atrocious. It's, it doesn't get any worse. And it's remarkable that they still have their faith intact because people today abandon their faith for far less. And I think, in the end, all the people with perfectly intact lives who abandon their faith for philosophical or intellectual reasons will stand before the multitudes who really suffered and really had reasons not to believe in God but persevered in their faith anyway. And that will be all the evidence against them, all the testimony against them. So in closing, here are three reasons we should have joy even as we face trials, okay? You can write this down if you want. Hope in Christ points us beyond the trials. Faith is strengthened by the very sufferings we endure. And hope joins joy to our suffering because it glorifies and honors Christ. Our troubles, they only last a little while. Our hope in Christ is forever. Jesus himself endured the shame of the cross because of the eternal joy that was set before him. Secondly, suffering tests our faith. It keeps us strong. Trials drive us to the Savior, and our faith is purified and refined in the fire of affliction when we come through a trial. In other words, our faith is stronger after the trial as a result. And third, we have joy in suffering because of the reward we will one day receive. And as we persevere, holding on to our faith, as fledgling as it is at times, it glorifies the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, the one who conquered death, who now reigns over the cosmos according to scripture. It glorifies him because he suffered and we have a union and fellowship with him by faith and through our suffering. So people of God, keep the faith. Keep fighting the good fight. No matter what you see on television, no matter what you read the newspapers, no matter the tide of public opinion against you, hold firm to your faith in Jesus, the risen savior who reigns and will return one day for us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life that Jesus lived, the death he died, and the victory over the grave. It is written that if Christ has not risen from the dead, that our faith is in vain. And so we grab a hold of this promise. Energize us, Lord, to see through the muck and the mire and confusion of what's happening in our culture at this very moment, to see the power and hope of the gospel in Christ. Strengthen us in our faith. Help us never to give up or lose our hope and our faith. 
but to persevere, not in our own strength and power, but in yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.